0: And it's kind of a shame that we have to do this in a single week, because this is such a significant part of our doctrine and the study of the Old Testament, is what was the message when God created the earth? Uh, We probably won't spend a lot of time in the Genesis version because we've got the JST of Genesis in Moses, so we're going to focus primarily on Moses chapters 2 and 3 and Abraham chapters 4 and 5. But that being said, Today, let's pause and talk about the Old Testament as a whole. I am sitting across from one of the great minds of the Old Testament in the gospel today, Mike Day, and I just want to give him some time to just talk about the Old Testament, what is it, and then we'll jump into the creation accounts
1: and commentary on the creation. So the Old Testament covers about 4,000 years of time, from Genesis 1 to Malachi it covers from about 4000 BC to 400 BC. Now, that's according to its internal clock. My take is that creation could have happened much, much earlier, and that the Old Testament covers a much vaster uh, time period. Now, you're going to hear me say this a lot this year, the Old Testament is kind of messy. And by that, I mean that there's parts of it that contradict other parts, and the dates don't always line up. So if you try to draw on a board an exact chronology of the Old Testament, you're going to run into some snags. But there was a fellow who actually tried to do this, and his name was Bishop James Usher. And he was around between 1581 and 1656, and he gave a talk in which he purported that the date of creation, like the end of the first day of creation that's found in Genesis, was October 23rd, 4004 BC. Now, you don't have to believe that, but if you look at the seminary bookmarks that we give students in seminaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we kind of start the Old Testament period right around 4000 BC, and it covers from that time period to the time of Malachi, which is 400 BC. So that kind of gives you an estimate as far as the time period that it's covering. And for this podcast, we actually made slides and there's a timeline if you want to see it on the fourth slide where you can see where the Book of Mormon history overlaps with some of the Old Testament history. Now, what does it cover? The Old Testament covers what I call the Everlasting Covenant. And that's the stuff that Bryce and I are going to talk about that's in the Pearl of Great Price. The Everlasting Covenant is the covenant that God made with his children that we talk about in the temple, the covenant of marriage coming into God's presence. I believe that Adam and Eve were taught about Jesus and redemption and the Messiah and what Jesus would do. That stuff's going to get edited out of the Old Testament. But a lot of this is contained in the Old Testament in types and shadows and similitudes and symbols. Also in the Old Testament, we have what's called the Mosaic Covenant, and that's going to be contained in much of the Old Testament books. Then after the Old Testament, we get into the New Testament, and that covers the New Covenant. And you can look at the slide once again and see the books that talk about this. And then we have what's called the New and Everlasting Covenant, where the gospel has been fulfilled. And so. When we talk about the Old Testament, typically in scholarship, they call it the Tanakh, and that represents the Torah and the writings and the prophets, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. And uh, the Torah is the law, the first five books of Moses, and then the Nevi'im is the prophets, and the Ketuvim is the writings. And so that's going to include poetry and wisdom literature. And you can see that a graphic of that on slide number five. Now, there's lots of ways to organize it. That's how a lot of scholars
0: organize it. In my head, as we go throughout this Old Testament, I'm going to break the Old Testament down into nine time periods. And that's just easy for me to kind of hold on to and to see not so much the way the books are organized, but the history of the Old Testament. I fit the books into these nine time periods of history. So number one is what I call the creation and its aftermath. This is Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, and its aftermath. That. That's mostly the first few chapters of Genesis. Then number two is Abraham and his family. It's the creation of the covenant. And we focus on Abraham and how the covenant is passed from Abraham to Isaac and then from Isaac all the way down to Manasseh. So that's time period number two is Abraham and its family. And that's mostly the book of Genesis. And then we go into Egypt. So Joseph is sold into Egypt. Eventually, the whole house of Israel comes down to Egypt. We stay there. Now we have to get Israel out of Egypt. So that's time period number three is getting Israel out of Egypt. That leads to time period number four, and that's the desert. Once we leave Egypt and we go into the desert— Then we've got the Ten Commandments, we've got the wandering in the desert for 40 years. So that's where we get the bulk of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy is kind of, you know, we're going to go back into the promised land, and Moses gives his final farewell speech. So that's the end of the desert period. Time period number five is the settling of Canaan where they come in, and Joshua leads them, and they end up organizing by tribe. And for a time period, they're organized by judges. So we find Samson in this time period, and Deborah and Gideon. So that's time period number five is the settling of Canaan. That eventually leads to a desire for a king, and the Lord gives them Saul. So time period number six is the unified kingdom, and so for three kings— we have a unified period where we're together, and then comes the fourth king, and the kingdom splits. So n- period number six is the unified kingdom, followed by period number seven is where Rehoboam doesn't follow the counsel of the wise old man and causes a revolt, and the kingdom splits into two kingdoms. We have the kingdom in the north, which is called the kingdom of Israel, and then the kingdom in the south, which is called Judah. And that will be a major time period where we go through about 20-some-odd kings. The northern kings will all be wicked, and they will turn to idolatry much quicker and lead to the destruction or the captivity of the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom will have a couple very good kings, very righteous kings, and we'll talk about that. So that's period number seven, the divided kingdom. Period number eight is where we would talk about the next step in each of those kingdoms. For the northern kingdom, it's when they are taken into Assyria, but we don't have that account. We will someday have that account. That's a lost book of Scripture where Jesus visits the lost ten tribes after he comes to America. So we don't have that time period in the Bible where the northern tribes go into Assyria, but the southern tribes are taken into Babylonia. And we do have that account. So that's time period number eight, where we'll study Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Ezekiel, and some of the prophets that are leading into the captivity of Babylonia. And then the ninth time period, which I want to harp on right now as we begin the study of the Old Testament, I think the most one of the most applicable time periods of all nine is the return from Babylon to Jerusalem. Cyrus the Great has a dream and is told to send the Jews back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And that time period is so typical of our day because we're coming out of the apostasy and we're rebuilding Zion, just like they came out of Babylonia and had to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So, those are the nine time periods that I'm going to break the Old Testament into its creation and its aftermath, Abraham. Egypt, desert, building up Canaan, it's the unified kingdom, the split kingdom, Babylonia, and then the return from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem. So
1: that's just kind of how I look at this and and how I break down the Old Testament time periods. That is just gold. Like, you just make it so quick, nine things, it's so awesome. And I would add a, a tenth time period to that, which is the dawn of the apocalyptic, And this is literature that doesn't make it into the canon. There are all these people that are having visionary experiences, and from about Malachi's time to about 200 years after Jesus, there's all this apocalyptic literature that is springing up in Judaism and in Christianity, and much of it doesn't make it into the Bible. Which brings me to the next point about the history of the Old Testament, which is to discuss canonization. And there's a lot of ink spilled on this, but to be short and speaking, it's difficult to pin down for a long time. Especially if you include authorship in that. Oh, it gets in... Not just what book got canonized, but who wrote that book. Yeah, who book. wrote it. Yeah, exactly. It's complicated because for years... People looked at this as there was a council called the Council of Jamnia, and you can go to the show notes and read more about this, and we send you to some links where you can read about pros and cons to the Council of Jamnia. But the idea was that uh, a group of Jews got together in rabbinic Judaism, and they decided on what the books of Scripture for the Hebrew Bible were to be, but I don't think it's that simple. And so at some time period, the Old Testament was canonized by a group of Jews, Another important thing to understand with the Old Testament, and this is so important to understanding what it's saying, is that in the third century, a group of Jews wanted to preserve it. And the problem that they had was their culture was being swallowed up by Greek culture. We call this the Hellenization of the ancient Near East. And because of this, and everyone's reading and speaking Greek, they translated the text of the Old Testament into Greek. And this is called the Septuagint. And in this text of the of the Greek Hebrew Bible... The early Christians would use it and quote it to teach and write about Jesus. And so the question that is often asked in classes from students is, Brother Day, which text did Jesus use? And the bottom line is, we don't know. I think that's the easy answer. He didn't have an iPhone that he pulled out and had a single copy. I mean, it was complicated. I think it's complicated. Now, here's my take. There are a lot of scholars that say that perhaps Jesus wasn't even literate, that he heard the scriptures read in Hebrew and possibly Greek, and then when he went out, he would paraphrase these texts and interpret them in his tongue of Aramaic, and I don't believe it. And the reason why I don't believe it is because Jesus is really, really smart. Smarter than everybody, right? And there's this J.S.T.
0: verse that says he couldn't be taught by man. He was taught from higher sources. And so for him
1: to be considered illiterate, just I just don't buy that. Yeah, I don't go there. So my take on Jesus, and like I said, I wasn't there, I don't know. But what I think is I think he read it in Hebrew. I think he read Greek. I think he could speak both. I think that he spoke Aramaic. That's what I think. But this is what we, I think we can clearly say. The data is inconclusive as to which version that he used, because we weren't there, and we have copies of copies of copies written by people who are writing Greek, but this is what we can be certain of. The authors of the New Testament, they used the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and the reason why is because so much of what they're doing when they're quoting Jesus, when they're quoting the Old Testament, remember, the Old Testament is Jesus' Bible, they're quoting the Greek version. And so I think that's important to note that at least whoever is writing about Jesus, the gospel writers, Paul, and so forth, these individuals are using the Greek version. Now, I think Jesus is clearly reading the Hebrew, and I think he knows this stuff. I think Jesus is super smart with languages, and so that's my take on that. I do want to say this is important to note— that it's not one book written by a single author. The Old Testament is not one book written by a single author. Rather, it's an anthology of books written over centuries and by individuals, and the ideas expressed in the Old Testament do not always agree. We need to just be aware of this and swim in this water that the Old Testament has an old aspect and a newer aspect. And the early, early, early texts of the Old Testament talk about ideas that later authors of the Old Testament rejected. And as they rejected these ideas, they edited out many things out of the Old Testament. But there are remnants that remain. And one of the big ideas that we're going to talk about today in creation is this idea that gods participated in the creative process. And this stayed in some of the Genesis texts. And as a Latter-day Saint, this shouldn't cause us any trouble. Because if you've been to the temple, we believe that Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, as God's A plural, team. created. Well, what Genesis 1 is doing, the very first word of the Old Testament, in the beginning, or beroshit, is saying that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And what those words mean are so rich theologically. So The bait preposition before Rosh uh, means in, so literally, Beroshit literally means in the head, or in the beginning, or in the first. Now, Joseph Smith is going to take Hebrew lessons when he's in Kirtland, and Joseph Smith, his mind is just lighting up when he's learning what this is really saying, because what this is saying in Genesis 1 is Beroshit, in the beginning, in the head, or in the grand council... Elohim, he barod, he created or he fashioned the heavens and the earth, heavens plural. And so what Joseph sees here in Genesis 1-1 is the grand council. And my take on the grand council, this is just gospel according to Mike Day. I think the gods are heavenly father. I think heavenly mother. I think Jesus. I think Holy Ghost. And then I think The Grand Council, meaning... The noble and great ones. Yes, yes. The Book of Abraham, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of the gods. Now, B'nai is sons, but it's plural, and it means sons and daughters, at least in my mind, and it can be read that way. And so there are all these texts from the ancient Near East, and we give one of these in the 11th slide, about how the council can be invoked as witnesses, meaning that gods and angels are participants in the grand council. Now, in John chapter 1, verse 1, John's going to use that word, sheet, and he's going to say, enarche. And enarche in Greek in John 1, 1, because remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so in John 1, 1, when John writes, enarche enchologos... In the head, or in the first, or in the beginning, in the grand council, in the beginning times, was the Logos. And then John says, and the Logos was next to God. And then he says, and the Logos was God. That's my translation of John one one. Now, in Judaism... And in a lot of Christianity, they they know that this is going on. These scholars read this stuff. And so their take on it is that this is a monotheistic deity, one soul god, and all this plural stuff just can mean a couple things. One thing it can mean is that there's a monotheistic deity and there's a grand council of angels. That's one way they look at it. And another way they read it is that this is one god, but when it says Elohim, they talk about what's called in scholarship... Plural amplification, meaning that this is a really important thing. We're really emphasizing God, so we're going to speak of Him in the plural. Now, while that's a take that I think is a good take and and it can be read that way, the problem is when you get into the verbs, when you're getting into some of the verbs where they're speaking, it uses the first-person plural, like, let us do this, we will do this. They wouldn't say that if it was just one person speaking. And so I'm going to push back on that. And frankly, I'm just going to say it. I read Genesis through the lens of the temple. Like I'm going to take what Joseph Smith gives me and I'm running with that baton. So Joseph Smith is legit. Like he's reading this stuff. And I think frankly, he's seeing this stuff because prophets stand in the council. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealed his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And the word secret is sowed. And that word means, the Grand Council. In the beginning was the Grand Council. So I love this stuff. I geek out on it. I think it's so cool. And I think Joseph sees this uh, in the King Fall Discourse on April 7th, 1844. He says that. He says, in the beginning, the head of the gods called a council of the gods, and they came together, and they planned to create the world. So I love it. Now, Elohim is the plural of El. There are many names for God in the Hebrew Bible, but a common one that's going to be used is going to be the tetragrammaton, which we're going to come into the second chapter of Genesis. We typically speak of the tetragrammaton as Jehovah. In a lot of biblical scholarship, he is called Yahweh in Judaism, they don't say the name. The name is so sacred that they say Adonai, which means Lord, or they say Hashem, which is the name. And so depending on who you speak to and which setting you're in, you might want to just be careful with the name of God. And so Hashem and Adonai are perfectly good ways to say it. I'm typically in this year in this podcast going to speak of that name as Yahweh, and that's the premortal name of Jesus in the church. We'll refer to him as Jehovah in the temple, he is referred to as Jehovah. Now, Elohim is the plural of El, and so that's one of the common names for God, or also um, El Elyon, the most high God. Now, Joseph Smith is going to use this and see this as God's And this can be confusing because when we go to the temple, we designate Elohim as Heavenly Father. And so there was a discourse by the First Presidency where they talked about this, and they said, we understand essentially what Elohim means, but we are going to designate that as Heavenly Father and Jehovah as Jesus. So know that in the temple and in common LDS discourse, that's how we refer to them. In this year's podcast, every time when we come to Elohim, I'm going to translate it as the gods or gods plural Or sometimes I will look at that and say, Heavenly Father. But just know that there's some ambiguity with those names of God. So that kind of gets
0: us to today's topic, and now we're going to focus on what we're going to do this week in Come Follow Me, and that's the creative period, the creation. Now going back to something we said in our last podcast, you got to understand the question that this is answering. Because if you think the question is, how did God create the earth? You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be frustrated with the discrepancies. You're going to be frustrated with general summaries. You're going to ask yourself, well, how can you have plants before you have sun, moon, and stars? And that doesn't make sense biologically. And the point is, he's not answering that question. He's not answering the how question that I think we gravitate to when we talk creation. If you'll go back to Moses chapter one, what I call the missing first chapter of the Bible, Genesis one is Moses two, which means there was something that came before the story of the creation in Genesis. And it's the question for which this story is the answer. Moses chapter one, verse 30, he doesn't ask, how did you do this? He asked, why? Why did you create an earth? And that is our theology. We need to understand why we're here. Why did we even create earth? What was the purpose in creating the earth? Because I match that with my life. My life needs to have the same purpose. I do things. I wake up in the morning, and what I do today needs to match that. The why of today needs to match the why of creation. And the more it does that, the more I'm in line with Heavenly Father's purposes. Now, again, we're not answering the question how, we're answering the question why. So what we get is summaries of massive time periods, not necessarily time as much as it's a period, because Abraham's going to refer to these as? Times. And Moses is going to refer to them as? Days. So it's either times or days, and it's... It's confusing if you're trying to answer the question, how did he create the earth? But if the question is why, then it doesn't matter. We're just going to get large summaries of creative periods, whether it's a time, whether it's a day. So in day one, he says, let there be light. And I don't know exactly how you're going to define that word, but it seems to be not the photons that come from the sun. It seems to be this living essence. It's maybe better translated life when a planet comes to life. He brings life to a planet. And all of a sudden, it becomes a living thing. The earth is a living thing. The earth is quoted all throughout the scriptures. In Moses chapter 7, the earth is going to groan and complain and ask for its redemption. So the earth now comes to life. That's day one. Now, look in verse 4, the word that the Lord uses to comment on his creation is the word good. Now, I don't want to downplay that, but when do you as parents use the word good? Your child scribbles something out, and look what I made, Mom. Oh, that's so good. But that's kind of a simple word. Oh, it's good. It seems to be an equivalent in our vernacular of it's okay. It was good. It met the need. Again, it's not that he's downplaying the creation. He's saying, that's not my purpose. We didn't create the earth to show off our ability. That's not why the earth was created. So he downplays that aspect of creation. It was good. Now, notice how that continues to grow. In day two, I'm in Moses chapter two. Day two, which goes from verse six to verse 10, It's the separation of water and dry land. It's kind of the formation of a place on which his children can live. It's an habitable planet.
1: I like to describe it as he's splitting the sea, and he's breathing into the sea this space where humanity can live, like a bubble surrounded by cosmic water. Great
0: analogy. But notice at the very end in verse 10, as he looks back over the creative period— whatever it was, again, he uses the word good. It was good. Dirt, land, the the combination of mountains and rivers and lakes and seas, that's good. But again, that's not my purpose, he seems to be saying. Day three is verses 11 through 13, and this is where we start producing grass and herbs and trees. Now we're going to make this planet beautiful and green, and it's going to bring forth vegetation. And I really liken day three as what a lot of us do when we go out into the workforce. We produce the things that we're going to eat. And at the very end of that, in verse 12, looking over that day's period, he says it was good. The plants are good. The plants that we're going to eat, food is good. Eating is good, but it's not the purpose. Now, day four, I think he put the earth into orbit, not necessarily created the sun. I think he's putting the earth into orbit, and he's making the light, you know, come up and down, and the earth rotates, and we have seasons, and we have winter and summer, and the leaves fall. But he creates this system where we've got a day and a night. We've got sun and moon. And now everything seems to be flowing on this planet. It's just beautiful organization coming together. And then in verse 18, once again, as he looks over his creation, he says, it's good. The sun, the moon, and the stars, the seasons, the falling of the leaves, the rebirth in the springtime when the leaves generate again. All of that is good. It's satisfactory. Clearly, it's not his purpose. Then we get to day five, verses 20 through 25. And what we don't have on earth are animal life. Now we've started, if you really different accounts, you kind of see some the introduction of animals over a couple time periods, but the gist is now we add the animals. We've got flying animals that are above the earth in verse 20. We've got animals below the earth in the water in verse 22. Verse 25, we've got animals on the earth. So both above, below, and on. And now we have animal life. And again, in verse 25, after he's produced all the beautiful animals and this earth with all its glory, food, water, sun, moon, stars, winter, summer, spring, fall, this earth in all its glory, verse 25, he says, it's all good. The earth is good. It has met his needs, but it doesn't yet reflect his purposes. And now all of a sudden we get to day six. Notice it's let us it's let us. And those of you who go to sacred places, notice the difference between days one, two, three, and four, where the commandment is you go do this. And now all of a sudden on day six,
1: it's let us go do this. And I just want to add, naasa literally is the imperfect plural. Like let us, that's what it says in the Hebrew text. And so in verse 26, we have Elohim saying this. So the gods are saying, let us make. Now, if you're in the Abraham account, this totally jives with all the stuff going on in Abraham where the gods are taking counsel and they're working together. And if you've been to sacred spaces, you know what this is talking about. You know, this is a temple setting. We're talking about origins. We're finding our bearings. Yep. And so they come down
0: and they make man after their image male and female, and they give them dominion over the earth, and then they command them in verse 28, the great command, which according to the proclamation is still in effect today. The first, the original and great commandment is, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. So in other words, if I can be so simple as to suggest that what was created on day six was the first family the coming together of a family. That Adam and Eve receive a commandment to be fruitful and have a family. And now watch the change in the wording. The very end, verse 31 of chapter two of Moses, with Adam and Eve and the formation of a family. That's really the only thing that's changed between day five and day six. Day five, we had the earth in all its glory and it was good. And now we've added a family. We've added sons and daughters, Adam and Eve, and the command to multiply and replenish the earth. And then in verse 31, he seems to be revealing his purpose. Now the earth isn't good. Now the earth is very good. Do you see that crescendo seems to be answering the question, why did you create the earth? And the answer is, he created the earth for families. He created the earth so that we could have families and children, and we could partner with God in participating in this plan of salvation. We could create bodies for his spirits to inhabit. And it was very good. Now, if we're going to keep playing on that word, where does God use even a higher term to acknowledge what it is, what's happening? his act of creation, so to speak. In the restoration, he refers to a great and marvelous work. And I think what we can do is we can put those together. The coming together of a family is very good. The sealing of that family into an eternal unit is marvelous. Therefore, I would suggest the earth was created so that we could create and unify and seal families for eternity. That's why we came here is to create eternal family units. Now that's confirmed in modern scripture. In section two was just quoted by Moroni on the day that Moroni comes to Joseph for the first time. And he's going to quote this four times eventually. He's going to say the same thing. He's going to quote Malachi about the coming of Elijah, which will seal families. And then he says in verse 3 of section 2, if it were not so, if Elijah doesn't come, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. In other words, the earth will not have met its purpose. The earth will have been a waste if we don't seal families for eternity. Hence, suggesting that the whole purpose of the earth is the creation, the unification, and the sealing of eternal families. Now, that's confirmed in one more place of Scripture. If you'll turn to section 49, do you remember last year when we were talking about the Shakers and Lehman Copley, and they had some bizarre beliefs, and Lehman Copley was sent to correct some of their doctrine, and one of their false doctrines was that they were forbidding marriage. So in verses 15 through 17, he talks about the correct doctrine. He says in verse 15, section 49, verse 15, marriage is ordained of God. And then he gives the whole purpose of the earth, verse 16. It is lawful that he should have one wife and they twain shall be one flesh. And all this that the earth might answer the ends of its creation. And that's what Abraham's going to teach us. The whole story of Abraham is how to come together as a
1: family, how to be united as a family. And I believe that this text was actually read and used in the temple. In fact, not only do I believe this, but if you go down the road of biblical scholarship in and out of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I mean, you read any of these biblical scholars They're talking about the idea that the creation story was read at the new year at the temple. And every culture had their version, and they read it because the temple and creation was how we got our bearings, and it's how we had order. It's how we had the social contract, how we get along. Even Dallin H. Oakes talked about this part of it when it comes to the social contract. He said, knowing that marriage between man and woman is essential to God's eternal plan, he said, Latter day Saints persist in the time honored religious principle that marriage is foremost an institution for the procreation and raising of children. We also adhere to the proven experience that marriage is the best institution for the economic, political, and moral well being of the human family. As President Spencer W. Kimball said many years ago, quote, We know that when things go wrong in the family, things go wrong in every other institution in society. End quote. I like that. And I find it to be true. I think when we have broken homes and broken families, we have problems across the board in society. But if you can find a group of people that have strong families, you have a lot of things going right. And so in the text, it says, like, tov is that word for good. And whenever I read the text, when I come across all these verses that says, and God saw that it was good, I say, it was tov. It was tov. It was good. But when you get to verse 31 of Genesis 1, where it says, uh, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, Hine, like uh, one way to read that is dude, or like, wake up, this is a cool thing. Behold, it was tov ma'od, it was very good. And so to me, the family, humanity is the purpose of creation. And doctrinally, this answers so many questions because how many times are children told that having children is selfish and what you really want to have is stuff? And if you think about it, we're not here very long. Like our legacy is our children. They're the continuation of us and our faith. And I think Okay, if we lived in the Bronze Age, if we lived in 1000 BC and we went to the temple and we saw the prophet and the king teach this at the temple, the very survival of our culture was to be fertile. If we don't have children, we're done. They're stressing in some countries because if they're not hitting that 2.1 mark of 2.1 children per couple, you lose your culture. And so this is a really big deal. And so the idea of being fruitful and multiplying and replenish the earth, that is all over the place in the Old Testament. We'll get in more of that when we get into like Genesis 17 and so forth. So we're going to backtrack a little bit in the earlier part of Genesis 1, because Bryce covered like the main point is that the Tov Moed is like that we have family, but go back to the second verse of Genesis one, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of God it's going to brood, but it says "Moved upon the face of the waters. So the earth was without form and void. Uh, that 's Tohu wa Bohu, and Joseph Smith is going to love this idea. You see, Joseph Smith sees this as unorganized matter. And that's certainly a way to look at it. To me, tohu wabohu represents total chaos. And this is where chaos is playing an actual role in creation. All through the Old Testament, we see this image where God comes upon chaos and he splits it. God splits the chaos. He reorganizes it and he creates order in the midst of chaos. Big picture, this is the story of Israel. Israel comes into a land and it's inhabited by these people that are doing all these destructive, chaotic things. Read Leviticus 18. And so God splits the chaos, separates it, and makes a place where they can have order. And the symbol for the chaos is the sea or the dragon. And even the word for sea can represent chaos. And so what does Moses do in Exodus? He splits the sea and they have a path and they create order and they go through the sea. And so I like this as a symbol. Well, and think about how many places in the scriptures do they cross
0: the sea? You got Lehi coming to America. You got the Jaredites coming to America. It's that
1: whole image of getting through the chaos and going to a promised land. Yes, I, it's beautiful. And I think chaos does play a role in creation. And, and Bryce, this is coming right out of the church's a lesson plan. I'm just going to read this right out of it because I think it's so beautiful. One thing that the creation story teaches us is that God can make something magnificent out of something that is unorganized. That's helpful to remember when life seems chaotic. I think this is a modern day application. Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are creators and their creative work with us is not finished. They can make light shine in dark moments in our lives. They can form solid ground in the midst of life's stormy seas. They can command the elements. And if we obey their word, like the elements did, they can transform us into the beautiful creations we were meant to be. That's part of what it means to be created in God's image after his likeness. And so to me, Wabohu is a big deal. Chaos, God's going to split it. That word for the face of the deep in the second verse is Tihom. That's a cognate of tiamat, which is this chaos dragon. So what's God going to do? His spirit is going to split the deep and we're going to divide it. And the way we divide it is verse six. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. If you look in the footnote in Genesis 1-6, it's going to say expanse. And I'm just going to say, there's a lot going on with this. So you kind of got to look at our graphics. So you got to go to slide 19. And the word for firmament is rakia, And it literally represents a shield or a dome over the earth. The ancient inhabitants of the world thought that there was a dome over the earth and that above the dome was water. And the reason why they believed this is because when they looked up, they saw blue. So where the ocean meets the sky, you see blue matching blue. And their assumption was that clearly there is water up there. And what they thought was that the waters of chaos were pushed back by the gods. And that the rakia was what separated it. It was the border that separated it. And above that water was another heaven where God lived. And this really helps explain so many texts where it talks about God riding upon the waters. This is what we call biblical cosmology. This is kind of how they viewed the cosmos. And sometimes people are really bothered by this because they think that the book of Genesis is like Carl Sagan's you know, description of the universe, but it's not like Moses was not hanging out with the Hubble telescope makers. Moses was a Bronze Age prophet, and God spoke to him after the manner of his language. And I'm totally cool with that. I'm fine with the Lord speaking to Moses after the manner of Moses' understanding. And part of the reason why I am is because Doctrine and Covenants 1 verse 24 allows us this wiggle room. And so if we can read the Old Testament this way, that the authors and the prophets and the poets that are writing and thinking and having these theological discussions about God, they were real people. And so Moses sees this. He sees this rakia that's pushing back the waters of chaos. And what that does for me is that gives me permission to read the Old Testament through Moses' eyes. I think that's important. Another reason why I think this is important to understand the cosmology of Genesis 1 is because so much of this is the temple. What I mean by that is I believe And scholarship would agree that the temple and the creation were talking about the same things.
0: Which should ring a bell with Latter-day Saints who attend modern-day temples, and
1: the first presentation that's made has to do with creation. It's right there. This story is our foundation stone. It's our beginning. Hence, it's tied to the temple. For the temple and creation cannot be separated. Biblical scholar John Levinson stated, The temple is a visible, tangible token of the act of creation, the point of origin of the world, the focus of the universe. So one way to read the text, and this speaks to me, is that Adam and Eve are us. And I'll never forget the day I first heard that when I went to the temple, where the narrator said at the beginning of the presentation of the endowment, he invited me to consider myself in the story as a man, which is really what Adam's name means, and for the sisters to see themselves as Eve. Now, we're going to get into the names of Adam and Eve because I believe that the names of Adam and Eve are significant. We'll get to that in a minute. But in this temple text, we hear that they are to be made lords over the whole earth. And I believe that this story is an invitation for us to create an Edenic state On the earth, we are to be gardeners. We are to make, we are invited to make Eden here. And Adam is to the garden as God is a gardener. Now think about that. Adam is invited to be a gardener. Now the gods have created the garden. So what do we read in the New Testament narrative? Jesus's resurrected kingly body is first portrayed by those that see him in a garden where he is mistaken as the gardener. And I would push back and say, that's because he is. Jesus is the fulfillment of what Adam and Eve were told to do, to be the gardener, which is beautiful stuff. I mean, I think the gospel writers totally know what's going on in Genesis. And it's so much deeper than that also. If you think
0: about the story of the creation, that God is going to take this rough lump of dirt floating through space and perfect it into this amazing creation, which eventually he'll celestialize. And don't you see the symbolism? He's going to do the same thing in each of our lives. What God does to the earth is a symbol of what he's trying to do to ourselves and our families. He's going to take me as this lump of nothing, and he's going to mold me and shape me and grow me into this glorified, Edenic, beautiful thing that he's created. And so the symbolism is very rich. The connection between man and earth is deep. And what the Lord is doing to the earth is also a
1: symbol of what the Lord is doing to us individually and as a family. There are so many things in here that are talking about the temple. There are books written on this. A great book is one written by John Walton called The Lost World of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2 and 3 and the Human Origins Debate. Now, I don't want to get into the Human Origins Debate right now with respect to his book, but I just want to read this quote from his book where he says, It would not have been difficult for a reader from anywhere in the ancient Near East to take one quick look at the seven-day account in Genesis and draw the conclusion that we're talking about the temple. Now, this man's not a Latter-day Saint, but he knows ancient Near Eastern literature, he understands Genesis, and his contention is that this whole story is talking about getting our bearings, understanding who we are as a nation and a people, and understanding our relationship to God. Now, Donald Perry is a Latter-day Saint, and he's another Bible scholar, and he wrote a great article called The Garden of Eden prototype sanctuary in a book called Temples of the Ancient World. And what he does is he gives 11 examples of how the Garden of Eden is a sanctuary. What I mean by sanctuary is is, I mean temple, like the Garden of Eden is the temple. And so these 11 things that he lists are the tree of life was located in the garden, and it's also in the temple. Both the temple and the garden had sacred waters. Eastward orientation played a role in both of these places. The cosmic mountain was affiliated symbolically with both the temple and the Garden of Eden. Remember Bryce talking about the river parting? We're going to get to that. The account of earth's creation is closely connected to the account of creation in the temple. In both places, the temple and the Garden of Eden, cherubim serve as guardians. Revelation was an important aspect in both the garden and the temple. Remember, in the garden, they're walking with God. They're talking to him face to face. Number eight, sacrifice existed in both the garden and the temple. Similar religious language existed in both spaces. I mean, if you've been to the temple and you've read Genesis, hello. Number 10, sacred vestments were associated with Adam and Eve. We're going to talk about sacred vestments in the garment. And then finally, number 11, abundance was associated with both spaces. And so if you go to the... 24th slide in Temples of the Ancient World, uh, Dr. Perry puts a marvelous graphic that you can see the creation, the fall, and the atonement depicted. On the left-hand side, you see the holy mountain of the Lord, and on the right-hand side, you see the tabernacle that Moses constructs inverting the whole story of creation and the Garden of Eden, meaning that we're coming back into God's presence as we ascend in the temple. And so I, I love this graphic. I use it all the time when I teach because this picture opens up your mind as to what the temple is. Another way to look at it is on the 25th slide, which talks about the outer courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies as zones of sacredness as we're coming back into God's presence. And another one is is the 26th slide, which talks about the story of the garden is literally recreating the temple or the temple is literally recreating the garden. And so they parallel each other and the design of the plan of the garden of Eden is a prototype of the tabernacle that Moses built. And I would add, it's a prototype of the temple that we build today. The temple is to take us to creation and creation is to take us to the temple because both take us back to God.
0: And in modern day temples, the culmination of the temple experience is the sealing of the family. Powerful message. I love it. So now we get to what I'm going to consider the bulk of this week's study, and that is Moses chapter three or Genesis chapter two. I stick with Moses because it's the JST version. Moses chapter 3. Now, Mike and I approach this from different directions. I see this as a single account, that Moses 2, the creative periods, the six creative days, flows right into Moses 3, and I take it as a single account where Moses 3 is commentary on the creation. To me, the great gift that God has given us is before he hands the keys over to the car— Before he hands a planet over to its new stewards, Adam and Eve, he teaches them, here's how to survive. Here's how your family is going to survive in this new world that we've created. So I see this as flowing naturally, two and three together but scholars kind of approach it differently. Mike takes a different approach. I want to present both of those, and then I'd like to jump into the commentary on creation that we find in Moses 3. But Mike, where do you see Moses 3 coming from? How does Genesis 2 compare to Genesis 1 or Moses 2 compare to Moses
1: 3? I do believe that we have editing going on throughout the creation of the Hebrew Bible and that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 come from two different sources. And the reason why I believe that is because as I get into the text of what it's saying, we've got Elohim doing all these things, he's speaking, and then when you get to Genesis 2, 4a we shift gears and we get out of Elohim doing stuff and we get into Yahweh doing stuff. And not only does he do stuff, but he's creating differently. He's getting in the dirt as it were. He's walking in the cool of the day and he's molding man. And it's totally a different creative experience. And so in most scholarship, when they get into the weeds of the Bible, they look at this and they say, these are two accounts that are stitched together to be brief in speaking. That's what they see as happening. And by the way, that's what the word text means. The word text literally means to weave together. And there are places in the Hebrew Bible to me that as I read it, the seams are glaring. You see seams where you're like, there's a seam where an author ends and another one begins, and a redactor or an editor just puts them together. Now, this shouldn't freak us out as Latter-day Saints because As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have this really cool thing called the Book of Mormon, and we have this really awesome editor, redactor, prophet, and his name is Mormon, and he's doing this stuff, and he's telling us that he's doing this, and then he gives his own commentary on it, where he's like, and thus we see, this is why we're doing this, and he tells you, okay, I'm going to shift over here, we're going to talk about this. The problem is the Bible, we don't really have that guy telling us who he is. He's just kind of doing it. There's no words of Mormon in the Bible. Yeah. So I'm going to come out right out of the gate and say, the documentary hypothesis to me explains so many things. It's a, a hypothesis that has great explanatory power. To me, it strengthens my faith because you have a prophet in his 20s in upstate New York basically putting forth a record to the whole world And the documentary hypothesis hasn't even been discovered yet. I mean, Wellhausen isn't even around talking about this. And so Joseph Smith, to me, is blowing the gates out, showing people not only does he know that it's going on, here it is. And then later scholars find it and say, oh, look what's going on here. We have stitching and we have this stuff going on. Now, back to Moses, because this is where I think this is really cool. If you go to Moses 3, I think Joseph Smith is seeing this. This is one way to read it. There's so many ways to read verse five, but look what Joseph Smith does in verse five. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. And then Joseph gives us this. For I, the Lord God created all things of which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. For I, the Lord God had not caused it to rain. Then it goes on. My point is that sentence in Moses to me, gives us permission to look at the first chapter of Genesis as a spiritual creating and the second chapter of Genesis as a physical creation. That's one way to read it because of Moses 3 verse 5. It kind of gives me permission to be flexible with the text. And so I'm going to talk about the documentary hypothesis in these podcasts, but I don't want people to walk away from them and think, does Mike believe the Bible or does Mike not believe in God? To me, the Documental Hypothesis strengthens my faith in God, but I know that it's also used as a weapon to destroy faith. And so at the end of the day, I don't think you need to understand the arguments of the Documental Hypothesis to be a gospel doctrine teacher or to be a student of the Bible, but I would say this, I would say that if you understand the scholarship and the reasons why... I think it will make you appreciate what's going on in the Bible. And so we've linked this in the show notes and we've also linked it in the slide. So if you go to the 33rd slide, just click the link on the Bible with sources revealed and read those 31 pages by Dr. Friedman. It will do a lot more than anything I could possibly say in this podcast, because the documentary hypothesis could be its own, hour podcast. So I want you to go there. I want you to read that. If you're interested, that's up to you. But to me, I can't even say enough of how much scholarship has helped me to appreciate and understand what's happening in the text. I can't say enough about that. But all that being said, my testimony is not based on scholarship. My testimony is based on the spirit I feel when I do those things, like go to the temple, participate in ordinances, or frankly, just read the text. It speaks to my soul. And so, Bryce, how do you read that? I go back to Moses chapter 1 to the question, why?
0: Why, Lord, why did you create this earth? So in Moses chapter 2, he says, well, here's the different creative periods focused on the family, the very good thing at the end of creation. And now Moses chapter 3 to me is sacred ground. It is the gold nugget that we're going to study this week. And I take it as the Lord after creating the earth says, let let me comment on this. To me, Moses chapter 3 flows out of a single text and is commentary on what he just did. In other words, think about all that you went through in order to drive a car. Before I hand you the keys to this car, I need to make sure you know how to be successful with it. Because if you don't, it could end your life, or it could end other people's lives, or it could create great destruction. And to me, that's what Moses chapter 3 is. Here's how to succeed in this life. Now that we've created this planet, can I call time out and give you some instruction on successfully navigating this life on this planet that we just created? And I find seven eternal lessons. And I love the symbolism of seven. God created the earth in seven days, and now he gives us seven eternal lessons about how to succeed on this planet. So I break Moses chapter 3. Into seven lessons. Lesson number one is verses one through three. God, after doing his work, rested. And the implication is you will not succeed on this planet if you don't find the right balance between work and rest. It's not work or rest. God worked and then God rested. And he's saying, if you want to succeed in life, You have to find the balance between work and rest. Now, Mike and I addressed this in our proclamation podcast. I don't want to be repetitive, but I do want to teach this eternal principle. Some people need to work more. We find that rebuke often in the scriptures. You are not working hard enough. You are idlers, and there is no place in Zion for the idler. So you need to work harder. But to other people, he says, don't run faster than you have strength. You need to rest more. And by rest, I don't mean just physical rest. Sometimes it's emotional rest or mental rest. And sometimes it's spiritual rest. You need to take a breath and rest. Now, since this is an Old Testament year, let me throw in one of the Old Testament obstacles. I worry that far too many of you do what Pharaoh did. You Pharaoh yourself, Do you remember when Moses came to Pharaoh and says, we want to go out into the temple. We want to have a temple experience. Let us leave and go out into the desert so that we can build and worship in the temple. That was the main request. And Pharaoh's response was, if you have time to worship in the temple, you're not working hard enough. Therefore, I'm not going to provide straw. You can get your own straw. Now, sometimes we do the same thing. My dear beloved wife... We have 10 children and our life is a little chaos, a little chaotic.
1: A little tohu wabohu.
0: <laughs> yes. And I have watched that dear sweet woman who I love with all my heart sit down to take a break and she ferrows herself. As soon as she sits down to take a needed rest, she makes the same mistake. She, she says to herself what Pharaoh said to the Israelites, if you have time to rest, you're not working hard enough. And as she sits there to take a break, she thinks of all the things she should be doing. And then she denies herself that opportunity to rest. But I remind you, the very first thing the Lord teaches after he creates the earth is that I worked and I rested, and we have to find that balance. Don't Pharaoh yourself. Don't allow that inner skeptic to suggest to you that if you have time to rest, even if it's spiritual rest, if you have time to go to the temple, then you're not working hard enough. Or if you have time to take a break, then you're not working hard enough. We must rest. One thing is needful. And we need to choose that one part. So if what's needful in your life is to work more, then I would encourage you to work more. But if what's needful in your life is to rest more, whether that's emotionally or spiritually or whatever, then I would encourage you to rest more. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said the following. Now, he quotes a drugstore psychologist, and I'm going to quote Jeffrey R. Holland because he has the authority that I want to quote. He said, a drugstore psychologist once said that people need three things to be emotionally healthy, and I'm going to interpret that as rest. One, someone to love. Two, significant things to do. And three, something pleasant to look forward to. That's rest. Someone to love something significant to do, and something pleasant to look forward to. So learn to balance work and rest. Now back to Moses chapter 3. So this is lesson number 2, verses 4 through 7 is order of emphasis, and that is spiritual before temporal. God created the earth spiritually before he created it naturally or temporally upon the earth. And I think the commentary there is that we need to do the same. We cannot forget to feed ourselves spiritually. Very few people will go throughout a day without feeding themselves physically because their body demands it, but they often ignore the demands of their spirit for spiritual feeding. And the Lord is saying, if you want to succeed on earth, take care of yourself spiritually first, and then take care of yourself naturally second. Educate your spirit, and then educate your mind. Feed your spirit, and then feed your mind. That's commentary number two, is spiritual takes precedence
1: over natural and temporal. This is gold. This is how to live your life, which is what we need. Right.
0: Create a family. This is very awesome. Good, and
1: then here's how to do it. Yeah, this is awesome. Commentary number 3
0: is verses 8 through 9. And it has to do with the two trees in the Garden of Eden. Verse 8, I, God, I, the Lord God, planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there I put the man whom I had formed. And out of the ground made I the Lord to grow every tree, naturally that is pleasant to the sight of man. So there's lots of trees. But there were two particular trees in the garden. The end of verse 19, tree number one is the tree of life. And also in the midst of the garden, he planted the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So I want you to picture those two trees, and I want to talk about the space between those two trees, because Joseph in Moses is going to reveal what Satan was trying to do in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you've picked this up. If you've been to the temple repeatedly, maybe you didn't notice this. If you've read the book of Moses, sometimes we miss this, but what was Satan trying to do? he didn't succeed. This was a foiled effort. And so what happened isn't what Satan was trying to do. So focus on what Satan was trying to do in the Garden of Eden. There are two trees. One is the tree of life, and the other is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the tree of life is the door to immortality. Um, Adam and Eve partaking of that tree keeps them in the Garden of Eden. You and I partake of that tree when we're resurrected, Resurrection is how you and I partake of the tree of life and become an immortal being. But that's the road to immortality. That's the, if you partake of that tree, you either remain or become immortal. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is just that, a tree that is filled with knowledge of good and evil. Now, the Lord says, don't partake of that tree Right now, and I would suggest from sacred places that that was a temporary commandment, that eventually that commandment would have ended. It is now time to partake of the tree. But the Lord says at this point, before we give you more instruction, don't partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, Satan had a cunning plan in that moment when the tree of knowledge of good and evil was forbidden. So let's ask the question, what was Satan really trying to do in the Garden of Eden? Notice in chapter four, when he tempts Eve, verse six, he knew not the mind of God, wherefore he sought to destroy the world. Satan had a plan to destroy the world. So what was that plan? I've got two trees. I've got a tree of knowledge of good and evil, a tree of life and a commandment not to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil yet. So what's Satan's plan at this point? Let me have the Book of Mormon reveal it to you. There are two locations in the Book of Mormon that teach us what Satan was trying to do in the Garden of Eden. Alma chapter 12 and Alma chapter 42. Alma is going to teach Zeezrom, and then he's going to teach his son Corianton what Satan was really trying to accomplish in the garden. So turn to Alma chapter 12 first. Let me let Alma teach you what Satan was trying to accomplish. Zeezrom is trying to trap Alma and Amulek. In chapter 11, Amulek teaches about resurrection and living forever, that we're going to be resurrected and that we're going to live forever. And then as a trap... Zeezrom says in verse 21 of chapter 12, Alma twelve twenty-one, What does the scripture mean which saith that God placed cherubim and a flaming sword on the east of the Garden of Eden, lest our first parents should enter and partake of the fruit of the tree of life, and live forever. In other words, Zeezrom says, wait a minute, you guys just talked about living forever, but God placed cherubim in the flaming sword so that we wouldn't live forever. So what is it? Are we supposed to live forever? Are we not supposed to live forever? He's trying to trap Alma.
1: I think this is also an example of how two people can read the same text and not see what it's supposed to communicate. So I think this is also an invitation to look at it and say, how are you supposed to read scripture, exactly. right? Exactly.
0: So Alma is now going to teach the correct doctrine. Why did God place cherubim and the flaming sword? So let me tell you, cherubim and the flaming sword was what foiled Satan's plan. But what did Satan want to do before cherubim took over and guarded the tree of life? See if you can see Satan's plan here. Verse 23, And now behold, I say unto you, that if it had been possible for Adam to have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life at that time now at that time is after partaking of the forbidden fruit which he just mentioned in verse 22 so satan's plan was get them to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil when it was forbidden and then rush them over and have them partake of the tree of life so transgress by doing it before its time and then rush over and partake of the tree of life. Now, what Alma says is, there would have been no death, and the word would have been void, making God a liar, for he said, if thou shalt eat, thou shalt surely die. So that takes out God. If Satan's plan works, God becomes a liar, and he ceases to be God. But he does more than just take out God. Now, keep your finger in Alma chapter 12, because I want to come back, but now go to Alma chapter 42, What else would happen if Adam and Eve partake of the tree of life after partaking of the tree of knowledge when it was forbidden? Ready? Verse 5, Alma 42, 5, for behold, if Adam had put forth his hand immediately and partaken of the tree of life, he would have lived forever, according to the word of God, having no space for repentance. Yea, and also the word of God would have been void. And the great plan of salvation would have been frustrated. Satan destroys the whole world. By doing what? By taking away a space for repentance. Satan's plan was partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil when it was forbidden so that they've sinned and then rush them over and partake of the tree of life so they live forever in their sins. Jesus would not be able to atone. He would not be born of a mortal woman. The atonement would not be able to take place. No one could be redeemed. But more importantly, no one would have a probationary time. So notice in Alma chapter 42, 4, thus we see there was a time, I love this word, ready, granted. There was a time granted unto man to repent. Yea, a probationary time, a time to repent. Cherubim and the flaming sword preserved an, uh, uh, the space between the trees. There is a space between sin and being held accountable for that sin. There is a space between to change and to grow and to repent and to learn. And God fought for and protected that space between the trees. Going back to Alma chapter 12, he said it this way in verse 24. After he teaches Yezrum about why the cherubim, he says in verse 24, and we see that death cometh upon mankind, yea, the death which is spoken of by Amulek, which is a temporal death. Nevertheless... There was a space, here's my word again, granted. There was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state. God intended from the very beginning that we don't have to be perfect. We are not here to be perfect. We are here to learn and to grow. We are here to fall down. And we are here to get back up, and we're here to learn. Now, that word probation, unfortunately, if you hear that word and think prison, coming out of prison, you're put on probation, that's the wrong image. Probation is if you screw up once, you go back to prison. That's the wrong image. I want to talk about the probation you're granted when you're hired with a new company. Let's take a college graduate. Let me take an architect. An architect coming out of college who has knowledge and is hired by an architecture firm. Now, what are the chances the new guy's plans are going to be as good as the guy who's been working for the architecture firm for 30 years? No way they're going to be as good. He's going to forget something. He doesn't know all that he should know, but he's on probation meaning we recognize you don't know and you are learning and growing and we're gonna tolerate your imperfection because we're investing in you and we know that you'll be better. Imagine getting a job at an ice cream parlor and you make your very first ice cream cone. What are the chances it gets handed over to a customer? It's probably a mess, right? There's probably no way your first ice cream cone is going to be worthy of selling to a customer. You throw it away, but they don't fire you over it because they expect your first ice cream cone to be
1: lousy. You know, Bryce, my stake president comes and speaks to the missionaries when they get home and he talks about this frustration that so many of them have because they're not married. They're not graduated from college. They're not where they want to be. And my stake president is, i just, first of all, I love the man. But he's so brilliant when he looks, because he's done this in my home, and I've had three sons come home from missions, and when they come home, he looks at them, and he said it to all three of my sons, where he says, don't get frustrated if you're not married, or if you're not graduated right away, or if you don't have your career. And then he says it this way. He says, the key is that every day when you get up, are you moving forward? The key is that you're progressing And Bryce, every time he says that in my home, I feel the spirit and it literally makes me weep because I'm like, that's it. That's right.
0: So that leads me to my main point here, Mike. Thank you for setting that up. My main point here is that Satan's plan was foiled. So what does he do next? What's plan B for Lucifer? Plan B, I would suggest to all of you is to get us to take our own probationary state away, to expect perfection of ourselves, to not tolerate mistakes. Now, I would guess that every Latter-day Saint will say at some point in their life, they have been traumatized with the expectation of perfection. Either someone else expected them or they expected it, But Satan's second attempt is to get us to take our own or someone else's probationary state away. We are so intolerant of mistakes in ourselves and in others, which is ironic because God granted a probationary state. We're going to mess up. We're We're supposed to mess up. Yeah. We're supposed to learn. And he granted us a time to learn. But we don't grant that same space to ourselves. We speak of toxic perfectionism, which is so crippling in the church. And we talk about there's so many people who don't grant that probationary state to other people, their own children or their spouse. God granted us a space between the trees, a space between sin and accountability for that sin so that we could learn and grow and say, I'm, that's not who I am, Lord. That decision doesn't define me. I'm gonna do better. Life was granted to us so that we could learn to be better. And we must learn to grant that same thing to ourselves. We have to grant ourselves and each other the space between the trees. Sometimes you make a mistake in this church and either we banish ourselves
1: Or we banish each other because you were a sinner. And the other side is addictions. If he can get you to the point where you're so entrenched in sin that you've lost the desire to repent, or you say, well, I'm never going to change, so you just give up, then in, in essence, you're taking the keys to your probationary estate and you're handing them over to him. And so I think I love the way you call this the space between the trees, because I think either way... I get unbalanced if I'm expecting perfectionism and I'm beating myself up or on the other end where I'm like, well, this is just how it is. I'm not going to change. In other words, we got to walk the middle road and the middle road is hard, but it requires getting up. And I love the theologians that talk about the idea of the Savior's atonement is an invitation to keep getting up. It's a beautiful message, isn't it? Yeah, go back to Oliver Granger last year. When he
0: falls, he shall rise again. Get up. For his sacrifice shall be more sacred to me than his increase. It's the getting up and the moving forward that
1: matters to God. It's awesome. Just keep getting up. And by the way, the Savior is perfect, and he'll get you home. This idea of the space between the trees and your reading of the Old Testament through the lens of the Book of Mormon is exactly what I wanted this podcast to be about when we're talking about the Old Testament. For me, Bryce, if I'm reading the Old Testament and I'm not using the Book of Mormon, I think I'm missing stuff. Exactly. And that's what the
0: role of the Book of Mormon is, to restore the plain and precious truths that have been lost. Okay, next commentary. Ready? These are all deep, so hang on with me. As a student, Bryce, I'm loving this, so give us number four. Okay, number four is verses 10 through 14. I'm back in Moses chapter three, and it has to do with the symbolism of these rivers. So I, the Lord God, caused a river to go out of Eden. So mortality is what flows out of Eden. This river is a symbol of our mortal journey. Now, Mike's talked about chaos and water, but now we're gonna use it in the form of a river because what the river does is it splits. It parted and came into four heads, and it splits the land. What flows out of Eden is division. You are walking into a mortal world that is divided from the very beginning, and that's not equally divided. Look in verse 11, the first division was called pison. And it compassed the whole land of Havilah, where I, the Lord, created much gold, which I think the assumption here is that there isn't much gold in some of the other areas. So it seems to me that the river does not divide the land equally, that some people had more gold than other people. And now I think the Lord is waving his arm, saying, do you understand what you're going to come into when you come to earth? You're coming into a divided telestial world, and yet our goal is to go to a unified terrestrial millennial state and then eventually get into a celestial state. If you want to fulfill the purposes of this earth, you have to overcome the division that this world is going to bring. Now, just think about the history of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, it mentions in the days of Peleg, the land was divided. Now, I believe there was a single continent in Eden, and then it gets split into seven continents. Now, are they all equal? They are not. And so there's a symbol of the people that inhabit them. They are not all equal. Some are bigger and stronger. Some have abilities that the others don't. Some are male and some are female. Some have this skin color and some have that skin color. And the whole idea is, are you going to be caught up in the division of this world, or are you going to overcome that division and be one? The two great commandments are basically to be one with God. And then to be one with men, one with other people, are you going to overcome? So in Genesis 10:25, we divide the land. And then think about what happens in the very next chapter. Genesis 11, we divide the languages. Isn't that symbolic that the very beginning of the earth is a dividing of the land? and a dividing of the languages. Now, what's interesting is Doctrine and Covenants one thirty three points out that in the millennium, the land will be unified. The land will come back together in one. Zephaniah indicates that the languages will be unified. It's interesting that the Scriptures point out, like Genesis points out the divided land and the divided languages, and then the Scriptures point out that in the millennial state— The land will be unified, and the languages will be
1: unified. Now, do you see the symbolism? Can you overcome division? This is the division, the leaving of God's presence, the coming to earth, and then the eternal return. This is the temple and creation. This is even Adam's name. It's coming from God's presence and coming to the earth. Yeah. So this is where we would
0: insert so many things that Mike and I have talked about in previous podcasts. In Jacob chapter 2, we talked about that natural desire to have more than someone else. And when you have more, you think you're better. And then when you think you're better, you persecute other people. And pride becomes a major message of the Book of Mormon. Think about the commentary the Book of Mormon makes on simply overcoming pride. That's a divisive tool that divides us. I'm better than you because I have more of this. Therefore, to overcome our pride, we have to be unified. So many commentaries in the scriptures and in the Book of Mormon and in the Restoration about oneness. Doctrine and Covenants 138, the Lord says, if you are not one, you are not mine. And then in 78, he says, if you can't be unified in temporal
1: things, you'll never be unified in celestial things. And yet he's putting them into division. He's Now, they're in the garden, so they're still one.
0: They're headed into. But when
1: they leave, right. And so the river, in, in your mind's eye, picture this, the river's leaving the space of oneness, and when it leaves the boundary, it parts into four. And so this hillock, or this hill of the Lord, is the temple And so the way I view the temple is we go to the temple to become one. And then when you get married, right, you cleave unto your wife or the wife cleaves unto her husband and they become one flesh. And so what Bryce is talking about with oneness and division is layered all over the place in this text. And it's even in the word for mist. When the mist waters the ground, that word for mist is the one to four principle. The Hebrew word is is doing what Bryce is talking about, where we have a one and a four construct. There's a lot going on here, but the big picture is we got to live in a divided place, but we have to be one. Yeah. We shouldn't be
0: divided in our homes, in our marriages, in our wards, in our stakes, in our communities. We need to overcome that division. So there's commentary number four, be one. Yeah. And don't be divided. Amen. Okay, number five is a play on a word that teaches a very powerful principle. This is what I call the first temptation. And it's not so much the temptation to eat the fruit. Watch for the play on the word every. So in verse 15, the Lord has put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And then in verse 16, he says, I, the Lord, commanded the man, saying... Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. So tell me, what would God be pointing to when he says the word every? Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Now, we know there's more than just those two trees. There's lots of trees. So what would he be pointing to when he says, of every tree you can eat, just not this one? And the Lord is saying, look at all the trees from which you can partake. Just this one is forbidden. In other words, the Lord will always emphasize all that you have, all that you are, all that you can do, all the blessings he's given you. Look at this incredible creation I made when I made you. Look at the 99 talents I gave you. Look at all that you are. Count your many blessings. Look at all the trees you can partake of. Now, turn to chapter 4 of Moses, and we're going to watch that same word be twisted. In verse 7, Satan's going to use that same word, but tell me what he's pointing at when he says it. So Satan comes to the woman and says, wait a minute, didn't God say you could eat from every tree? He's pointing at the one tree they can't partake of. They've been commanded not to partake of. In other words, Satan will always point out what you can't
1: do. Or maybe even what you don't have. Or what you aren't. Like that comparison, oh, You don't have that guy's body or that guy's body. You're not as pretty as. You
0: don't have the... Satan will always point out what you aren't or don't have or can't do. And by the way, we do it to ourselves, don't we? Well, the question is, who do we listen to? Do you listen to God who points out all that you have? Or do you listen to Lucifer and focus on the one thing you don't have? And I think that right there is the story of success on earth. Now, we're going to get to Saul and David. King Saul is the king of Israel. He's led them in victory. They've won some great battles. Along comes David and sl- takes out Goliath and wins this great victory. They come back home and the women are singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul is wroth. And he's angry. And he'll say, to David, they have ascribed 10,000. And to me, they have ascribed but thousands. And he eyes David from that moment on. From that moment on, he's trying to destroy David. Because David outdid him. Instead of focusing on the 99 qualities that God gave Saul... He focused on the one thing that he gave David and didn't give Saul. And there's the commentary. Do you notice all the wonderful things the Lord has given to you? Or do you notice the one flaw? Going into the world, in the Garden of Eden, the Lord is saying, this is going to be a problem. Read very carefully Doctrine and Covenants 25 verse 4 to Emma Smith. The Lord says the same thing, murmur not because of the things which have been withheld. And he then points out they've been withheld for divine reasons. When you look at your life, when you look at your body, your talents, your abilities, do you see the wonderful things that God has made? Do you see every tree that you could partake of? Or do you see the one thing you can't do or don't have or aren't? do you focus on the flaw? I think none of us like to look at pictures of ourselves because when we see a picture of ourselves, we don't notice the 99 wonderful qualities that other people notice. We notice the one thing that we hate about ourselves. And when we look at a picture of ourselves, we realize that other people get to see it too.
1: When you're in a group picture, and you think it's you that they're looking at? What, what is everybody else looking at? They're looking at themselves. They're looking at what they look like. That's the irony, right? That is.
0: But we see the flaw and we think everyone else sees it. So let me give you an antidote for that, because again, the Book of Mormon has the antidote. How many times are we going to say that this year, Mike? The Book of Mormon has the antidote. Alma, if ever there was a moment like Saul had to be jealous of David, to David they have ascribed 10,000 and to me, but thousands... Alma had that moment. Five friends went on missions. Four of them went to the Lamanites, and he, Alma, went to the Nephites. Alma is coming out of Ammoniah that was just destroyed for their wickedness. Women and children were burned, and he had to have a front row seat. And that's when he meets Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni coming back with thousands of Lamanite converts. Do you see the potential here that Alma could have torn himself down? But instead, Alma chapter 29, verse 9, he says, I glory in that which God has given me. I don't glory in myself. I glory in that which God has given me. In other words, when are we going to rejoice in all that we have and all that we are and stop looking at other people and seeing what they were given that I've been denied? She's so much prettier than I am. He's so much more wealthy than I am. He has talents that I don't have. When are we going to glory in who we are? And then Alma adds in verse 14, my joy is more full because of the success of my brethren. I'm not threatened by other people's
1: success. I rejoice in it. So there's commentary number five. Let me just briefly interject here. This podcast is kind of hitting on what I call all four levels of Scripture, uh, the anacronym for this is Pardes, and Pardes comes from four words, Peshat, which is the plain reading of the text, and Bryce and I have talked about this, the plain reading, Adam and Eve, the creation, gods, doing the creating. Then you have Remez, that's the allegorical reading, which we're going to talk about in a minute with the rib, but there's other allegorical pieces of Genesis 1 and 2. What Bryce has just done is drash which is the moral or imperative sense of the text, or what I call, how do I apply the text? If you don't read the text looking for how it can apply to your life, I think we're missing it. I think that matters. And I think number five is a big deal. Like the whole time you were talking, Bryce, I thought of the recent pictures of myself. And I look at them and I'm like, oh, I don't like how I look. And I get so frustrated. And yet that's okay. Like that's where I'm at. And then finally, the the fourth level is sod, and that's we've talked about this, the council or the council of the gods. This is the mystical or esoteric meaning of the text, or what I call the temple reading. And we've done some temple, haven't we? Yeah. We've done some plain reading, we've done some allegory, and you are laying down what I think is so important and I think is often missed which is how do we apply this? Because the text isn't coming in your face and saying this, but listening to you talk and pull this out, as you're doing this, Bryce, I'm like, well, yeah, it's right there. It's just right there. And so I want to once again take my hat and tip it to the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon is doing so much of this. And just as a reminder, it's translated by someone in their early 20s in upstate New York in the 1830s. I'm just going to say that. So let's get on to number six. Okay, number six is the rib. So from 18, verse
0: 24, I, the Lord God, said unto mine only begotten that, and I love this, it was not good that man should be alone. We are not destined to navigate this world alone. We need each other. We need people. And specifically, we need a spouse. We need someone who will walk with us. Now, to all of you who have spent your life without a spouse, I I trust that God will make all those things right, that we've had wonderful people that have walked the life with us, and that someday no one will miss out on an eternal blessing because they just ran out of time before they could fulfill it here on earth. But I do want to talk about the rib, because of all the commentaries, he seems to be saying, this is how you make it work as husband and wife. I remember years ago searching for where does God teach how to be married? And then I found it. It's in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, is foundational to almost all world religions. And that's where the Lord puts the commentary on marriage. And he does it symbolically. Verse 21, I took one of his ribs. I, the Lord, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and I took one of his ribs. And verse 22, the rib which I, the Lord, God had taken from man, made I a woman, and brought her unto the man, and commanded, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In other words, the symbolism of the rib is so deeply significant. Now, let me break it down into four. You'll find so many more, but let me break it into four applications. Number one, my wife is at my side. And if I were a woman, my husband would be at my side. Number two, my wife is the cage that protects my heart, and I am the cage that protects hers. Number three, my wife is closest to my heart. No bone is closer than my rib cage. And number four, my wife is under my wing. So number one, at my side. If God had taken Eve from Adam's foot— that would have placed the man above the woman. There are marriages where the man is placed above the woman, and that is not where God placed man and woman. If God had taken Eve from his skull, that would have placed the woman above the man. And woman is not to be above the man. If God had taken Eve from his back, his spine, that would have placed the man ahead of the woman. If God had taken Eve from his sternum, that would have placed the woman ahead of the man. But God took Eve from his rib, from his side, eternally stating that husband and wife are supposed to do all that they do side by side. Men don't go in front and lead women, and women don't go in front and lead men. They walk side by side. If I ever do anything that places my wife underneath me or above me or in front of me or behind me, I am not placing her where God wants her to be. And she is not placing me where God wants me to be. It is at my side in all things that I do. Number two I love this symbolism that the ribs are a cage that protects my heart. No one loves that woman more than I do on this planet. But the reality is no one can hurt her as much as I could. That makes us very vulnerable. Husband and wife, because of their proximity, love each other most but have the potential to hurt each other the most. And we've seen what happens when they try to do that. I could hurt my wife more than anyone on this planet could. I know her. I know her very well. I know what makes her happy. I also know what hurts her. But God has placed me as the guardian of her heart. I am her ribcage. And I will be held accountable for being her ribcage. And I better never be the one who causes that pain. We're going to put a wonderful quotation from Elder Holland in the show notes that he gave on Valentine's Day. And he talked about these very things. I think you'll really enjoy the quotation. But it talks about, how dare I? If I ever do that, God will strike me down and hold me accountable. I must be the rib cage that protects her heart and never the one that causes her pain, and vice versa for husbands and wives. Number three, I love the idea that nothing is closer to my heart than my spouse. In the Old Testament, and then again in the New Testament, the commandments were summarized into two great commandments. Do you remember how it goes? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And then the other one is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In other words, God you love with all your heart but your neighbor you love as yourself, which is a pretty high standard of love. If I thought of other people as often as I thought of myself, I'd be a pretty good neighbor. But then in Doctrine and Covenant, section 42, verse 22, the Lord elevates one human being up to that love level that God possesses. He says, thou shalt love thy spouse with all thy heart. There are only two people I'm commanded to love with all my heart, God and my spouse. Nothing is closer to my heart than my spouse, and I need to keep her there. Nothing occupationally, nothing in terms of my hobbies, nothing should be closer to my heart. President Spencer W. Kimball said it this way, and he said it very powerfully. He said, when the Lord says all thy heart, it allows for no sharing, nor dividing, nor depriving. And to the woman, it is paraphrased, thou shalt love thy husband with all thy heart and shalt cleave unto him and none else. The words none else eliminate everyone and everything. The spouse then becomes preeminent in the life of the husband or wife, and neither social life, nor occupational life, nor political life, nor any other interest, nor person, nor thing shall ever take precedence over the companion spouse. The Lord says thou shalt cleave unto him and none else. Marriage presupposes total allegiance and total fidelity. Each spouse takes the partner with the understanding that he or she gives totally to the spouse all the heart, strength, loyalty, honor, and affection with all dignity. Any divergence is sin. Any sharing of the heart is transgression." And number four, my wife is under my wing. I think if we each saw that my spouse is under my wing, she is my primary responsibility. She is the one I focus my attention most on. And if I were a woman, he is the one that is under my wing. He is the one that I'm most going to focus on protecting and taking care of. I love those four symbols, and I love that in the commentary on creation at the very beginning of the earth, the Lord says, let me teach you how to be husband and wife. And he does it with symbolism we see every single time we go to the temple. And I would invite each one of you to ponder, how is my spouse like my rib? Boy, if you've ever broken a rib, you know how painful that is. It's painful to breathe. And if I've ever broken the relationship with my spouse, it is painful to breathe. So beautiful symbolism on commentary number six.
1: Excellent. Right before that verse where it talks about the rib which the Lord had taken from man, if you go to Genesis 2, verse 18, it says that the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make and help meat for him. And I think that phrase has been misused, especially in traditional centuries and centuries of traditional Christianity to subjugate women and to put them into a secondary position. And I think the temple is inviting us to reconsider this, to rethink this. And I think what President Nelson has been doing in his presidency is to elevate women especially as we read this through the lens of the temple experience and the recent things going on in sacred spaces there underneath his leadership, I want to take you to the 38th slide in the show notes. This slide is entitled Genesis 2.18 and a help meet Ezer Konegdo. And we break down the Hebrew right here. So first we have lo, and that can mean for him or to him. And then we get Ezer. And then we get connecto. Now that ending O at the end of that uh, word, it's going to be for him or to him. And so what this is talking about is really a powerful phrase to designate Eve's position and who she is. Eve, chava, is very closely related to the word for to be, haya. And so her name literally means life bearer. And in the Egyptian tradition, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that Eve kind of represents Isis. Isis means throne, and she is designated with a throne on her head. And these are to be sarim or sars. Like the word sar is prince. Adam and Eve are sarim. They're lords over the whole earth. Even the text will say things like, I give unto you dominion. Well, who has dominion? Kings and queens. In one of the creation narratives, and, and we may not have mentioned this, there are four of them. You have the Genesis account, and we've spent a lot of time in the Moses account. But the Abraham is another account that I invite you to read and consider. And the fourth account we have is not written, and it's the temple. And in one of these accounts, it does say that they are to be lords over the whole earth. And I take it as that is Eve's position, and she is a life bearer. And the Greek translators of this text— We're so into the meaning of her name that they literally translated her name as Zoe. She is Zoe because she is the mother of all Zonton, meaning she is life because she's the mother of all the living ones, the living beings. And so Eve, to me, I'm elevating her. I'm going to pull her right up and I'm going to put her next to Adam because there is no kingdom without Eve because she provides the line, the kingly line. She is a continuation of it. And I'll even pull back further and say, Adam and Eve are extending God's authority, God's right to rule, God's glory extends through Adam and Eve and through the right of fertility, through their creating life, they're participating in the work of the gods to bring to pass life. And so to me, Eve's a big deal. And I also look at her as a prototypical temple. Every one of us has come to this earth through our mother. And to go back into God's presence, we have to go through the veil. And so the veil and birth and woman are all interconnected. I mean, that could be its own podcast. It's a beautiful symbol. How does the temple and my mother and birth and the Savior's atonement, how are those symbols related? And I think this is all swirling around in the meaning of her name, which brings us to Ezer. So that's the word that's going to be used for helper. But it's actually a word that's used 21 times in the Old Testament. But the way it's used, it's used as the help that God gives. I'm just going to read a couple examples so you can kind of hear how it flows in the text. For example, For the God of my father said, He was my ezer and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Exodus 18.4. Or this one, Happy art thou, O Israel, saved by the Lord the shield of thy ezer, Deuteronomy 33, 29. Or how about this one? My help or my ezer cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth, Psalm 121, 2. Or how about Hosea thirteen nine, which reads, in me, the Lord is thine ezer, thy help. You see, Eve's help Certainly not servant. Certainly not someone below me. This is superhero stuff. This is godly help or godly strength. I mean, the way Ezra is used, this is not, like Bryce is saying, this is not someone who is to wash the windows. This is literally God's power. Pulling me out of the drowning sea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is so important. And then we have that key preposition before neged, so connecto. Key a lot of times means like or as. I mean, there's a lot of flexibility with that key preposition, but the word neged means corresponding to a lot of times neged would be could be used as if I put two things identical on a table, then they're corresponding to the other. Like I you know, so one scholar translated this as a great strength to meet yourself, but that's not even a good translation. Uh, but I do like the idea of meeting yourself. She is a correspondent to Adam. And by the way, Adam means man. Adam, and a lot of times in the Genesis of text, it will say the Adam. It will say Ha Adam. The definite article Ha is the. So the Adam. And the translators just put, oh, God said to Adam. But my point is, Adam means us. And so when you go to the temple and they're like, hey, guys, this story is about us. That's what's happening in the back end of Genesis 1 is the code or the Hebrew, and Adam is a code, and it just means the man, but it means us, and Ha Adam also means all of us, I mean men and women, like we are Adam, and so this spouse is a correspondent to him. Now, I would also throw out this, as a man, I'm to be an a connecto to my spouse Sonia, like that's my job, and that's why... The brethren have said this, they even said this recently in a press conference, where they said, one plus one in marriage does not equal two. It's three. It's bigger than us. In fact, when I was sealed to my wife, that's what one of the things the sealer said to us. He said, if you two work with the Lord, you will accomplish more in your marriage than you ever could accomplish alone. And after almost 30 years of marriage, I can say, my life is so much better because of my Ezer Konegdo, my, my Lord, powerful, strong, Person that corresponds to me, like meeting myself, or maybe this is a little bit cheesy, but if you've ever seen those charm little bracelets where they have a heart and it's cut in half, and you know that's the other end of it because you put it together, that's as a connecto. Like that's what it is. And Bryce, we're back to division again, and we're back to reunification. And it's saying it in the English, it's saying it in the Hebrew, it's saying it in the Temple, and I love it as this invitation. To come back to God, but He wants us to find our ezer Our in the word even for rib can mean rib or side like we 're by each other 's side, so it 's just really cool, which leads us to like the seventh thing, which really bleeds into the next chapter, right, which is okay, so now i 've met my Ezer but i can 't do it without God, so what 's he going to give me exactly so let 's get to number
0: seven now, I just i don 't want to be repetitive, I just want to make sure they 're clear. Commentary number one was that balance between work and rest. Number two was spiritual before physical. Number three is the three, the space between the two trees. Number four, overcome division. Number five, overcome that comparison and noticing what someone else has that you don't have. Number six is that husband and wife coming together and ribs and standing at each other's side and being united as one. We now get to the very last verse of chapter three and we walk on sacred ground here. So go with us. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Nakedness here is a symbol of I am... Seen, I'm exposed. Our nakedness are all those things we'd like to keep hidden. There are parts of our body we don't go showing the world, just like there are parts of our lives we don't go showing the world. To be naked means those parts are being exposed. Someday everyone will be naked before God when their sins are exposed. Now they were naked and not ashamed. In other words, that exposure wasn't a shameful experience here i am eve everything i am is exposed to you and i'm not ashamed i'm open but then in the next chapter they partake of the tree of knowledge of good and now they're ashamed now they are naked and ashamed now watch what happens in verse 13 of chapter 4 moses chapter 4 verse 12 they partake of the fruit verse 13 the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked so what do they do they try and cover their nakedness with fig leaves. These fig leaves represent all the things that you and I do to cover our sins. All the ways we hide our sins. For example, we lie about what we've done and we cover our sins with a lie. Or darkness is another fig leaf. We do things in darkness so that the darkness will cover our sins. Fig leaves are what you and I do to cover our sins. Now, I don't see very many people wearing fig leaves nowadays, because the problem with wearing fig leaves is they dry up and they easily fall off. Everything I do to cover my sins is going to fall off. So verse 14, what do they do when the fig leaves aren't enough? Notice in verse 14, they hide among the trees. They use bigger things. Alma says that in the latter days, men will want to hide under mountains. That's how big their sins will be. They'll be that naked and ashamed that they'll want mountains to cover them. But do you see the growing effort? If one lie doesn't effectively cover your sin, what do you cover your lie with? A bigger lie. And then when you cover that with a bigger lie and a bigger lie and a bigger lie, until finally you run out of coverings. There was a couple, Lori and Mark Hacking. They were married in the temple, and Mark was attending school at the University of Utah, or so his wife was told. That was a lie. He was not attending classes. So he was covering whatever he was doing with the lie of going to school. Now, the problem with that fig leaf is how long is that going to last? How long can he tell his wife that he's going to school? He can't do that for a lifetime. You're supposed to graduate. So eventually, Mark tells his wife that he's been accepted into medical school in, I believe it was Georgia. So he covers his lies with a bigger lie. And now he has four more years to hide underneath that lie because they're just going to be moving. Well, Lori gets a little curious about housing and where they're going to live. And so she makes some phone calls to the medical school and the fig leaves start to come off. She discovers that Mark has not been accepted into medical school. So she calls the University of Utah and more fig leaves fall off. And she comes to discover that Mark has not been attending classes. So can you imagine what's going to happen that night when Mark gets home? He will be naked and ashamed. His lies have come off. He has come uncovered. Well, Mark had one more covering. A horrible, tragic covering. He shot her that night. He killed his wife he told the police that Lori had been abducted. Now, the wonderful thing about the police department is they're pretty good at pulling off fig leaves. And pretty soon, Mark Hacking was naked, exposed, and ashamed. And the whole world knew that he killed his wife. And Mark Hacking is now spending time in the Utah State Penitentiary, naked and ashamed. So you can try and cover your sins But it's going to take bigger trees and bigger and bigger trees because it's going to keep coming off. So you might ask, well, isn't there a better way? Isn't there a better way to cover myself than continually using fig leaves and bigger fig leaves? And there is a better way. Adam and Eve were asked, why are you hiding And I know they don't come out immediately and they're forthright, but they do in the end say, look at verse 18 and verse 19, I did eat. That's repentance. I made a mistake. I sinned. I transgressed. I did eat. Now, here is an absolute beautiful moment. As soon as Adam and Eve repent, what does God do this time? Instead of fig leaves, verse 27, Moses four twenty-seven, unto Adam and also unto his wife, did I, the Lord God, make coats of skins and clothe them. As soon as they repent, as soon as they took off their own coverings, their own silly attempts to hide their sins and confessed to God and repented, God covered them with coats of skins. Now think for a moment. Where would Heavenly Father get coats of skins in order to cover them? Where after the fall would Heavenly Father get coats of skins? He killed an animal. Now which animal did Heavenly Father kill to cover Adam and Eve with their skins? He killed a lamb. He killed the lamb. And he took that skin and he covered Adam and Eve with it. Now you and I get to go into sacred places and we are covered with something that symbolizes that same skin. God took the atonement and he covered Adam and Eve with it. So instead of covering our own sins with lies and darkness and time and all the other fig leaves that we use, if we turn to the Lord and repent, He covers our sins, and that covering is never going to come off.
1: Bryce, I also think it's tied to identity. In the temple, we receive the garment of the holy priesthood, and it's attached to a name, and just to think big picture, our identity comes from God— And this garment or this coat of skins represents our connection to Him.
0: And it doesn't come off. Mike, I know you know. Tell us what the word kaffar comes from. Tell us about covering. What's the symbolism of that word and atonement?
1: I mean, that word is tied right into atonement. I mean, it is atonement to be covered. And in the uh, New Testament, if you go to Hebrews 10, the Apostle Paul writes, That the veil is the flesh of Christ, and we come through the veil into God's presence. And so, in essence, the veil is a representation or a manifestation of God. And the Ark of the Covenant was covered by the veil when it traveled because the Ark represented something sacred. And so, that veil was kind of a covering. And we receive a covering in the temple, we receive the garment of the Holy Priesthood. The garment, to me, Represents what you're talking about, the lamb of God that was slain. And so in essence, I, in duo, that's the Greek, I put on Christ. And Paul everywhere is talking about in duo Christ. Where He conjugates it differently in the Greek, but the point is that he says we are to put on Christ. And so to me, I take a piece of the temple with me. I invite through symbol God's atonement to be covering me, with me in my life. So I really like this. I think this is important because I think that there are some individuals that ask questions like, what's the point of the garment? And sometimes maybe they think it's not explained well. And I think sometimes perhaps we don't appreciate it or we don't understand it. I think sometimes when those questions are asked, maybe it's because there's a lack of understanding of what it is and I want to just invite everyone to reconsider what the garment represents, that God is covering us. You see, even the word for skins is or and the word for light is or God is giving them coats of light, and and we give this to you in the slides. If you look at slide 35, because I show you the pun, they're slightly spelled differently, but they're uh, pronounced the same way, Or And so there's a lot of textual history connected to this, that God is giving them coats of light. And what's also interesting in here is if you look at Genesis 3.21, it says, unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? And actually in the Hebrew text, it's, and Yahweh Elohim made to Adam and to his wife skins, and he clothed them. And that's a construct. It could be read lots of ways, but one way is clearly Lord God. But another one is Yahweh of the Elohim. You see, it's a genitive construct chain, meaning Yahweh of the gods, meaning that Jesus himself of the Elohim handed to them and clothed them. Now think about when a baby is born. In antiquity, the baby was washed and it was anointed and it was clothed. It also received a name a name and clothing and it was washed and it was anointed and think about sacred spaces and think about what this means. You see, to me, it means that when I take the garment, I take a piece of the temple with me and this garment or this coat of skins represents our connection to him. It doesn't say it in the text, but I'm with Bryce on this. I'm totally with him when he says, well, where are they getting the coats of skins from? And so if you go to the 37th slide, there's an image of Adam and Eve, and Adam has in his hand a lamb. And that's the image that I see. Everything Bryce is saying, I'm like, yeah, that's what I see. And I think this wasn't just a matter of, hey, we're just going to clothe you. I think this was a period of instruction. And I think the instruction is lost, but I think part of it is restored to us in the temple. I think that we get what I would call additions to Genesis in the temple through the prophet Joseph Smith. Yeah. So I just want to end with that image of Jesus handing to Adam and Eve, their coats of skins as a connection to him. I believe that Genesis is an invitation for us to consider that there's a lot happening that is not on the page that is restored to us in the fourth creation account which is in the Holy Temple. And with that, we'll leave it here and we'll see you next week when we cover Genesis 3 and 4 and Moses 4 and 5. Thank you for being with us.
0: Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.